We'll hear argument now in number 995746, Lonnie Weeks v. Ronald J. Angelone. Uh, Mr. Olive. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there is an intolerable risk in this case that the jurors erroneously and mistakenly believe that in sentencing the petitioner, they had a duty to sentence him to death upon the finding of an aggravating circumstance. This violates the Eighth Amendment, and the petitioner seeks resentencing. Five facts compel this conclusion. First, the jurors promised to do two things. One, sentence according to the instructions, and two, come back and ask the court what the instructions meant if they didn't understand them. Number two, the actual sentencing instructions were quite short. The pertinent instructions are at pages 199 and 200 of the JA and are two pages long. Number three, the jurors had these short instructions read to them in court. They heard these short instructions. Number four, the jurors then took these short instructions with them into the jury room. They had them in the jury room. If there was any confusion or lack of memory about what the instructions said, they had them there to study. And number five, they clearly did study these jury instructions. The instruction you're talking about uh, was upheld in Buchanan, was it not? The instruction in the context of Buchanan was upheld. It was upheld across the board, I think. It didn't say in the context of Buchanan. Well, Chief Justice Rehnquist, as I read Buchanan, there's a footnote four in which you write that the instruction which would be unconstitutional uh, would be a strained S-T-R-A-I-N-E-D, strained construction of the statute. And then after that footnote, the court goes on to say, were we concerned? And that's where the Boyd citation is. And the court says, quote, in this context, uh, in the context of all the things that had happened at trial, in this context, under Boyd is satisfied. But the, 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 the qualification is, were we to entertain any doubt, which is a subjunctive. It didn't say we did entertain doubt. It's an alternative ground. Well, my reading of the case is, is the same as your reading of the case, is that there was an application of Boyd. But also the fourth footnote says to me that if a juror had this understanding, the strained understanding of the instruction, the court would unanimously condemn it. And our argument is that these jurors had, or there's a risk, had this strained misunderstanding of the, of the instructions. Well, how, how broad a rule are, are you asking for here? Uh, is it limited to capital cases? Uh, the rule in this case we feel is compelled. Uh, we're not seeking a rule. We think it's compelled by Eddings. And, yes, the rule that we're asking for is a capital case rule. And is it that whenever the jury... Uh, ask, uh, uh, sends a note to the judge asking a question that the judge can't refer them to an instruction. He has to respond directly to the question? Not at all. Then uh, the, the rule how, how do you differ that? Well, here you have a, a question which illustrates that the jurors are po- poised to violate Lockett and Eddings. Uh, we have parsed this instruction. We have thought about it. And we have thought about it enough to, to write out a question and to highlight what we think our options are. That's far different from, you know, what's, what are we doing here? Well, I are think we- that may be reading more into the question than is justified. Um, I think it may be a reasonably common practice for trial judges when faced with a question from a jury about an instruction to refer the jurors back to a particular instruction if the trial judge thinks that it's that it properly answers the question and maybe they just haven't focused on that aspect of it is that not a practice that occurs uh, not infrequently it, in trial courts it occurs not infrequently uh, primarily in non-capital cases, and it may, in fact, occur in some capital cases. The amicus brief, which says the cases that are illustrative there, are no, none of them are capital cases. Do, do, we, do we also look at the surrounding circumstances, the arguments of both counsel and any other instructions that are included in the packet? I think that once the jury uh, or the senator comes out and illustrates what they're thinking <laughs> then the surrounding circumstances, which are so important in a Boyd context, when you're trying to figure out what they might have been thinking, uh, carries less weight. I think the overall context... But it may carry some weight. Uh, I'm concerned that in this case, uh, both the attorney for the defendant and the prosecutor made clear during their closing arguments that the jury was free 
to impose a life sentence uh, if they wish, despite finding an aggravating circumstance. And, and the sentencing judge in Eddings had a statute, and we presume he understood it, that said any circumstances can be admitted and any circumstances could be considered. But the risk in Eddings was that judge's comment, offhanded, uh, some would argue, or controlling, others would argue, that he believed he couldn't or might not be able to consider certain mitigating circumstances. And that was in the context of not argument, uh, but a record full of mitigating circumstances and a statute that he was presumed to understand. And Your Honor wrote in concurrence that a reasonable argument could be made that that judge was just making an offhanded comment. Mr. A reasonable you, argument could be made here. You, you, yes, you argue as though the, the judge did not give the jury any help at all when they asked this question. But that's not the case. He just didn't, he just didn't snap back, well, the, you know, the question is already answered in the instructions. He specifically referred them to the, to the paragraph of the instructions that answered the question. I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a considerable help. And then you add to that the fact that, that the jury, which had already asked two questions and therefore was not shy about asking when it didn't understand the instructions, did not come back and, and say, we still don't understand. I don't know why you think there's a serious risk that they that they still didn't misconstrue it. In fact, you know, you might argue there's a a greater risk of misconstruction when you when you're dealing with a jury that has displayed its its reluctance to ask questions. Here's a jury that asked the question. The judge said, "This is the paragraph that answers your question," and 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 you heard nothing more from. Them. It's the only paragraph in the the instructions that would have created the question. There's no other operative paragraph in the instructions, and I would bet. Now, I want to focus not on, on lawyers or judges or justices, but on jurors. And this quotes recognition many times, and, and once uh, in Simmons at 512 U.S. 171, that we presume jurors are going to follow the instructions, even if pointed back to them. And now I quote, uh, but because the consequences of failure are, are so vital to the defendant, the practical and human limitations of the jury system cannot be ignored. And the practical and human limitations of the jury system here was, I bet the jurors had memorized that instruction but, by but the time even, they got back with to court. Lay, even with I'm laymen uh, who are seeking advice of counsel, it's a common occurrence for them to phone counsel with a question say, it's in the contract. Just read paragraph two. It answers it. It's not just judges and, and attorneys. Well, we're, we're used to the fact we say, look, it's in the statute. If you read the statute carefully, we've considered this and it's there. Well, a contract is a great example. It's like a RICO instruction. It's, it's plausible, even probable, that a juror or a client would say, I don't get it. That's because it's in paragraph 44 sub AQB. Here, there was one instruction. Suppose and that, that, and was that judge, instruction, if I can just one follow-up. Suppose the, the judge had said, I'm going to tell you to, to read one paragraph of the instructions that answers your question. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to come back. That is, suppose he had said that. The, uh, the fact that the jurors came back two or three times, which Justice Scalia referred to, to me cuts in the petitioner's favor. So, 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 suppose the judge gave the comment at the end of his, of, of, of his answer that I've, that I've hypothesized. Well, say he did it in this case and in the context of this case. They came back three times, and every time they came back, they didn't get an answer. They got an answer which was, uh, no more helpful than what had already been given. The answer was, follow my instructions. The answer that you just gave was, follow this particular instruction. And the juror, a reasonable juror, a practical juror, would say, you know, I've got that memorized. That's why I'm here. No, I came but they out, didn't, I came out they of the didn't say that. My, I, I guess I want to be clear on one thing. Do you think there is anything either erroneous or at least in an objective sense incomprehensible about the instruction to which he referred them? Incomprehensible? No. Ambiguous? Yes. What was ambiguous? About? Ambiguous? What is ambiguous? I, what, what I frankly find it hard it to see how you could have said it more clearly if he had tried to re reformulate it in yeah. some other way. Well, the ambiguity would be the ambiguity recognized by the dissenters uh, in Buchanan, uh, is that uh, if you find an aggravating circumstance, what you must do is impose the death penalty uh, or 
uh, and then the rest of the phrase to where if you if you haven't found an aggravating circumstance, then you shall not. That's not what it says. Which, which it's didn't not mean. what it says. It says, or if you believe from all the evidence that the death penalty is not justified, with the amb- then you shall fix the punishment of the defendant at life in prison. With, with the ambiguity being parenthetically, i.e., that there is no aggravating circumstance found beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Olive, the, the pattern instructions have been changed since the one the court inspected in Angeloni. And they are clearer now on the point that that you're raising. How did the how did that change come about? What precipitated the change so that now the jury would get a clearer answer if had they come in with that question? I can only speculate. I do not know the, the historical background of that change. Um, so it would be speculation. But my speculation, which would be informed, uh, would be this Court's opinion, that there was a problem or there was a, a discussion of a problem and a split in the Court about whether these were clear or not clear. I, I thought uh, that the ambi- — sorry, were you finished? Yes, yes. I thought the ambiguity was with the word justified. I right. mean, I thought it read, if you find the Commonwealth has proved aggravators beyond a reasonable doubt, then — you may fix the punishment at death. Or, if you believe from all the evidence the death penalty is not justified, then you shall fix the punishment at life. I suppose somebody hearing that might think, if I find the alternatives, it's death. If I don't find the alternatives, it's life. Isn't, wasn't that the ambiguity that's there? Which is the of course, a lawyer may know that the word justified refers to mitigators, which word never appears. That's... With, after the word justified coming the parenthetical, what do you mean by not justified? That there's no aggravating circumstance. That seems to me really a re-argument of Buchanan. And I thought this court in Buchanan had said that instruction was, was proper. What and the, I, I really think I'm hearing you suggest that we should adopt the view of the dissenters in Buchanan. And no, I'm that not, would be difficult for us to do. I and think. I'm not asking that. I, I'm, I look at Buchanan actually as authority for the proposition in this case because of the footnote, which says, well, yeah, a jury could read this way. They'd just be wrong. And if this court had had a jury reading this instruction this way in Buchanan, I doubt that we would have Buchanan uh, written the way it is. Buchanan didn't uh, announce a rule that forever and ever jurists and sentencers won't make a mistake. No, but it did, announce that, it did announce that this instruction was uh, sufficiently clear to be uh, under the Constitution. That I think that that's — and what we're arguing is that in application in particular cases, it would nevertheless not be constitutional. The court can jury. Well, so you're, you're saying, then, that even though an instruction is perfectly sound, the Constitution requires that if a jury — a juror asks a question, the trial judge has to do something more than simply refer them to the instruction. That's an extraordinary doctrine. Uh, under some circumstances, it is not extraordinary. In fact, when jurors — don't even ask a question. Penry, for example, uh, perfectly constitutional sentencing instructions, but the circumstances of that case compelled an well, additional well, instruction. Do you, and do you, Skipper is another example. Do you have any authority for the proposition that the Constitution will require a judge to answer a juror's question by something other than a referral to, uh, back to an instruction? Yeah. Is there any case where we have held that? I think that the, the cases holding that either implicitly or expressly are Penry uh, and, was that, was that, was, and Simmons. Was that a jury question? No, it was even well, less than well, that. I, I, a, I'm asking you, do you have a case from this court in which the court held it was constitutionally required when a, instruction, a good instruction was given, but a juror asked a question that the judge could not simply refer them to the instruction? I do not. However, with respect to both Penry uh, and Simmons, the issue was what would a juror think? And if it was possible or reasonably likely that a juror would think something, then this Court found that constitutionally adequate previously juror instructions were not sufficient in that case. But how does it actually go? And additional additional instructions had to be given. Four members of the Court thought it was — you were right on it being ambiguous on itself. Five didn't. Yes, five didn't. So it's okay. The instructions. Okay, that's the end of it. Now, you can't have a rule of law that says whenever a juror doesn't find an okay, you know, whenever a juror is confused, the judge can never just refer them back to an okay instruction. No. That couldn't be the rule of law. 
But you can't have Therefore, this case, if you're going to win it, must have a clear factor about it that makes this special. And what is it? The clear factor about it that makes this special is that these sentencers were like the sentencer in Eddings. There is an intolerable risk that these sentencers believe they were precluded. Now, in Eddings, we had a judge who we presume knew the statute uh, and had an offhanded remark. But if, if the statute is, as you say, ambiguous, why would you think that some other jury that didn't ask a question was simply wrong in picking the wrong, the wrong choice of the ambiguity? I, I don't know why the asking of the question, if it's really ambiguous, there, there's an enormous risk that a jury that doesn't ask a question would have interpreted it the wrong way. But the court in Buchanan uh, stated that an interpretation like this would be a strained interpretation. When you have before you a senator who has a strained interpretation, as in ethics, it is the responsibility of the state court or the federal court is, is, to is correct some, that strained interpretation. Is there some principle that a person who is taking a strained interpretation will normally ask a question? No, there isn't. See, it seems to me that's essential to your argument. No, there isn't. But when a court — Well, if that's, if that's the case, then the fact that they, that they asked a question makes no difference. And, and, if, and we should simply say, in all cases, there's a risk that a jury is, is going to come back with the wrong, with the wrong answer to this. And, and, and we said, you know, uh, that that's not the case. It alerts the court that the jury or senator is poised to violate it the Eighth Amendment. It doesn't alert the court unless you, unless you somehow — uh, sustain the principle that a person who is likely to take a strained interpretation is also likely to ask a question. And I don't know why that follows. You know, it's, it is only in the cases where the jury comes back and asks the question that I think that you can feel comfortable, especially under the circumstances of this case, where they highlight and underline and tell you what they've been thinking, that they have interpreted the sentencing instruction in a way that could violate Lockett. We have lots of judges. Now, I'm, I'm sure this won't be a popular notion, who may not act according to a statute or may not act according to sentencing instructions because they make a mistake. That may happen all the time. But when the judge indicates that a mistake, especially a capital sentencing judge, indicates that a mistake may have been made, this Court does not tolerate the risk. And that's the Eddings principle. Ms. Mr. Olive, what do you, what do you make of, of this portion of the, the uh, facts here? We start with the assumption that we have a jury that is not too bashful to ask a question. Number two, the judge refers them to an instruction, uh, which, which we must take as a proper instruction. And, in fact, I, I do take it. Number three, having been referred back to that instruction, which the jury has in front of it, the jury then spends approximately two hours before it returns a verdict. It doesn't come back with a snap verdict five minutes later saying death penalty, uh, nor in that two-hour period of time does it come back with a further question. If we are going to engage in psychologizing here uh, to try to find, uh, try to assess the risk, isn't the most probable inference the following one, that in fact this jury, which knew how to ask questions, didn't have a further question to ask, and number two, spent their two hours in considering the very discretion which, according to the instruction, they had. And if we draw those inferences, I don't see where there is an intolerable risk or even a substantial risk that the jury misunderstood these instructions. There's something in this record that I've never seen before. The jurors come back with their verdict. And the juror then the jurors then are polled one by one, and the first juror's name is called, and the the question is, did, is this your verdict, the death penalty? And the court reporter, sui sponte, uh, without any request from anyone, puts in a parenthetical whereupon a majority of the jurors were in tears. Now, they were gone for two hours. Are they in tears because they think they have a duty they don't want to carry out? That is — I, I don't see how that can possibly get us beyond pure speculation. Uh, you know, maybe what you suggest is true, uh, but it seems to me far more likely they are in tears uh, because they have, they have had as jurors 
to perform the, the most terrible act that a juror can ever have to do, and that is to recommend a death sentence for someone. Well, uh, and, and for me to say, or for, for this Court to say, well, uh, the, the emotional reaction uh, is, in effect, a, a, a basis for inferring incapacity to understand instructions rather than to say uh, their emotional response was a response to the terrible burden that they have just discharged would be pure speculation. And the other position would be pure speculation. And our obligation is to remove speculation. Let me go to the No, but your, the, 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 the burden of your argument is to, is to indicate to us that there is the risk that you claim. Right. And I don't see anything more than a speculative basis for your argument. Well, referring to may, your may, may I, however, go back to my question, which has sort of dropped out of our dialogue here. Uh, if, if we — perhaps we, we should agree to disagree on the significance of the jury's emotional reaction. And let's go back to my question. Non-bashful jury, question, referral to an instruction which is sound, two hours of further deliberation before the jury comes back, no further question. Isn't the most reasonable inference, if we're going to draw one at all, that this jury that knew how to ask questions didn't have a further question and spent the two hours, uh, in effect, uh, deliberating over the discretion that they understood themselves to have? No. I think the jury came back three times. They were promised during voir dire, if you come back, you'll get further instruction that will help you. And three times they came back. The further instruction was not additional instruction, not clarifying instruction. It was follow the instructions. So your argument Well, no, but it wasn't just follow the instructions. The, 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 the response was go to a certain paragraph of instruction number two, I think it was, whatever, uh, which was the instruction that was right on point. The That's only the instruction that gave rise to the question. The instruction, the instruction <laughs> gave rise to the question. There was a circular and, argument. And That's it. The, the question supposes that repetition ex- equals clarity for these jurors. Well, and sometimes sometimes in reading briefs, I find that reading a paragraph a second time helps me, and I understand it the second time when I didn't the first time. And the premise of the judge's response is that something like that may happen with jurors and jury instructions, and it seems to me. A, pretty sound assumption to make. That's why I, t- I tried to set the table with uh, these jurors did that. They read the, se- the paragraph a second time, and I think it's reasonable to conclude they read it over and over. These jurors came back with a very detailed question, illustrating they had read the paragraph or the instruction again and again. They had a simple yes or no question they had crafted, illustrating to the court what they thought the problems were with the case and what their confusion was. They had highlighted it. I can't for a moment think these jurors hadn't read and reread, been confused, read it again, uh, and formulated a question. Under those circumstances, I don't think it does any good whatsoever to send the jurors back. Uh, my response as a juror would be I've, I've practically memorized this. Is your, point, is your point, I don't want to put words in your mouth, though I suppose I will be, but, I mean, uh, if their confusion is they do not know if the two words not justified refer to absence of aggravators or presence of mitigators, if that's their confusion, I guess reading those two words, not justified, ten million times will not clear up the confusion. Well put. Well. Uh, that's it, that's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Olive, <laughs> uh, is this a case uh, controlled by um, EDPA, the, the new statute dealing with uh, post-conviction relief? There have been uh, arguments made that 2254D applies. Um, the arguments back and forth, I'll go into them if, if Your Honor would like me to, but I guess the simple answer is... What is your position? That is 20, it or not? That 2254, the standard of review under 2254D mm-hmm. ought not to apply in this case, and the Why? reason that it ought not to apply in this case is because 2254 and, and all of AEDPA or EDPA has as its policy concern or, or recognition that state courts that grapple with federal constitutional issues ought to be rewarded or certainly not punished uh, for their good faith efforts to enforce the federal constitution by looking at the legal landscape and applying the law. And when you have a decision from a state court which doesn't reflect that struggle, uh, which is simply a summary denial, then you don't have an adjudication or an opinion to which deference ought, 
ought to apply. Now, that, that issue has not been uh, thoroughly briefed or addressed by the yeah. parties, but that would be my argument with respect to 2015. I'm surprised you, you, you call it a summary denial because the Supreme Court of Virginia wrote an opinion dealing with all sorts of uh, issues uh, at some length. And they, they said this issue simply was was barely adverted to and no supporting authority. And so they said, well, we, we will know, you know, we'll rule against you on it. Yeah, it said just denied. And that's what I mean by summary. On, well, are you talking on about these, the, the state? On these claims, the state court simply said we find no merit and denied and didn't state the legal basis for it. And didn't give us what the legal landscape well, was. Well, but it, it said that the, the, that the claims were simply stated and not argued, didn't it? Um, it said that the so-called arguments we reject, yeah. and in the brief, the so-called arguments were a reference to Penry and to Woodson and to Brandt. Um, so, yes, it did say that, but the Court, in its opinion, didn't indicate on what basis it was rejecting the claim. Well, if Section 2254-D1 is applicable, yes. then uh, we would have to say and determine here that the Virginia Supreme Court, in denying the claim, rendered a decision that was contrary to Correct. or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by this court. Correct. And I'm troubled by that because I don't know of any case where we have articulated anything about a duty to instruct in different terms rather than call a jury's attention to an instruction the court believes covers it. Our so I, I don't see how we're if, if EDPA applies, I don't see how you can meet the standard. Um, our argument is that Penry recognized that the Eddings rule uh, applied to juries as of 1986, uh, and our position is that the Eddings rule is that if there is a risk that the sentencer considers themselves precluded, then the state has to correct that misimpression. Uh, so Penry would be our argument that Eddings uh, was the law that the Virginia Supreme Court opinion is contrary to or uh, that they applied in an unreasonable manner. Mr. Olive, you may have adverted to this earlier, and I may not have been paying attention when you did, but let me ask you this. If the judge in this case had followed his reference back to the instruction by saying the following thing, would you still have an argument here? What if the judge had said, uh, if after you have reread the paragraph I've referred you to, you still have a question about the way it should be applied, come back and we'll go further. If the judge had said that, would you have any case here? I believe I would. Again, I, got two, I have two answers to that. One, they might not believe that, having been promised that throughout voir dire and three times it not happening. But number two, the McDowell case, which we put in the, in the uh, petition and is also in, in the blue brief, uh, that's a case in which the jury came back, asked a question, the judge answered it, and the judge said to the jurors, now, does that answer your question? And all the jurors, or at least one of the jurors on behalf of the jurors, said, yes, that answers our question. Uh, and in McDowell, the court said, by referring them back to the same instruction, uh, it would be folly to presume that that instruction really helped them out of their dilemma. So I think we would still have the same problem. That's a Ninth Circuit case? Correct. It's Judge, uh, uh, judge Pratt. Olive, I thought in response to the 2254-D, that you were relying on Boyd to say that if the jury misunderstood to the extent that it wasn't going to take mitigating factors into account, right. then that would be reversible, Well, was for reversal. Penry, I think, involves a, a Boyd analysis as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but our position is that once, the juror, once we know what the jurors are thinking, once they have given us an adding statement, Boyd may no longer be the test. The test may instead be a test that has a different risk assessment, which is an Eddings test, um, whether there's a, a risk as opposed to a reasonable likelihood. And if there's a difference between those tests, that's more petitioner-friendly, I would assume the Eddings test would be the test that applies. I, I guess if we adopted your position, states would have to have two form instructions, because if you say just repeating the form instruction is not enough, you, you're, you'd either leave it to the judge to uh, do a seat-of-the-pants uh, uh, Reformulation of the of the of the standard state instruction, or you you, you would have to have a second a second uh, uh, alternative. 
prescribed uh, as a form instruction. Indeed, maybe a third, because if they don't understand the second, they come back and ask the question again. You're going to need a third one. <laughs> or else you let each judge seat of the pants it every time they, uh, every time they say, I don't really understand it. In, in Eddings, this Court didn't remand the case back to the trial court and say, read the statute. And just read the statute. This Court said, you've got to consider mitigating circumstances. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Allen. Uh, Mr. Anderson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. First, let me deal with the Buchanan holding and counsel's suggestion today that uh, the holding uh, in Buchanan upholding the validity of the model jury instruction that was uh, given verbatim in this case somehow was something less than an unqualified holding. Counsel today, for example, talks about uh, that the instruction was ambiguous but not wrong, and he refers to this ambiguity being recognized by the dissenters in Buchanan. But in the Fourth Circuit, after Buchanan had been decided, uh, Weeks repeatedly indicated in his brief and his other uh, post-opinion pleadings that Buchanan had, in fact, upheld and made clear the facial validity of the uh, model jury instruction. He didn't say anything along the lines of, well, in certain contexts, uh, the instruction would be okay, but not in others. It was just a flat-out acknowledgement of the obvious, that the uh, holding in Buchanan was, in fact, a holding on the merits and made clear that the jury instruction adequately explicated to the jury its uh, sentencing options. In his cert petition, and this court in Buchanan talked about uh, the model instruction uh, establishing a decision, I think the words were a simple decisional tree. And Weeks, in his cert petition, echoed, he parroted that very language. He said much the same, that the model instruction given in, in the case and that the court referred the jury back to uh, uh, that it uh, established this uh, decisional tree that a juror ought to understand. The cert petition was premised upon a facially valid jury charge, and the question was, well, if you have a facially valid jury charge, but the jury nevertheless asks a question about that, where does that leave you? Uh, what sort of duty does the judge have uh, with respect to dealing with that? But the point is, the cert petition specifically presupposed the facial validity of the jury charge for purposes of this case. And this Court's made clear in any, any number of cases that where you have a premise in a cert petition, such as the one I've just said, that you can't later try to... Uh, wiggle away from that and say, well, that's not really No, but it seems the the instruction was facially valid, but that this particular jury, just as the dissent in the other case predicted, did in fact misunderstand it in precisely the way the dissent predicted. Isn't that correct? Well, I'm — That's that's, why they asked the question. No, I don't don't agree that that's why they they asked the question. Well, the question certainly would be the question that one reading the dissent — would expect a jury to ask. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. If one thought the dissent was right, which I happen to, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very eloquent dissent, Your Honor. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't write it. But it does raise the question that a jury might so interpret the instruction. Well, and it appears from this record that the jury did so interpret the instruction. Well, let's go to that dissent in Buchanan. Uh, it, was, it was a 6-3 vote, and it's very interesting because the dissenting opinion repeatedly, or at least several times, talked in terms — it didn't say the instruction was just flat-out wrong or or constitutionally deficient. It said it was overly ambiguous. But it said several times in the course of that dissent that if there had been uh, an instruction on mitigation, that would have handled the matter. That would have made it clear to the jury. We have a mitigation instruction here, and this is one of the two differences between this case and Buchanan, which otherwise — for purposes of the present case, is is so similar in terms of procedural incidents. But we have in in Buchanan, uh, excuse me, in this case, in in distinct contrast to Buchanan, which was one of the primary complaints there, 
an instruction on mitigation that uh, went well beyond what is even the model instruction in Virginia today on mitigation. It said, and this is at Uh, 195 of the appendix, and it goes on in the first paragraph to define mitigation evidence generally. It says in the final sentence of that paragraph, the law requires your consideration of more than the bare facts of the crime. And considering in this case that the only factor, aggravating factor found by the jury was vileness, that's another way of saying you have to consider more than the uh, the vileness of the murder. It then the second Do you think that's an equivalent of saying that even though you find the aggravating circumstances, you may nevertheless impose a life sentence? Do you think that sentence does that job? Well, I think we have to look at the, at the rest of it. The so second what other sentence in, on 195 conveys the message that the jury sought in this case? The, the final uh, paragraph, the first sentence says you must consider a mitigating circumstance if you find there is evidence to support it. Now, the argument here, Your Honor, it's very important to bear in mind, the argument consistently and exclusively has been that the answer, there's never been any claim and there couldn't be that this jury ever received any misinformation from, from the trial judge, from the Commonwealth's attorney, from defense counsel on such basic principles as the fact that you have two sentencing options in the sentencing phase, life and death, that the death penalty under no circumstances is mandatory, that the life sentence under certain circumstances is, and that under any circumstances you must consider uh, the mitigating evidence. But the argument has been that the answer didn't go far. Not that the answer was wrong, but the answer was didn't go far enough and left open too much a possibility that the jury would disregard the mitigating evidence, period. Not that it might consider the mitigating evidence in some fashion, but that, it, but that its consideration was too restrictive, a la, say, for example, in, in Penry. And those are, those are very different matters. Mr. Anderson, may I back you up a bit? Because you said the instruction that was given at 195 goes beyond what is the instruction today. The instruction today on mitigation is very clear. It says that even if the Commonwealth had proved beyond reasonable doubt the existence of an aggravating circumstance, the jury must nonetheless consider the mitigating circumstances and weigh that against the aggravator, precisely what was lacking in this case. So I can understand your argument when you say this instruction was enough, but for you to say that it went beyond what today would be told to a Virginia jury, I think is quite wrong. Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg, we, we have two different model instructions here. And I, if I recall correctly, the one you're alluding to is the model instruction dealing uh, the current version of what was instruction two in this case, which is if you find aggravating evidence and then if you uh, find mitigating evidence, et cetera. The model instruction I'm referring to is the Virginia model instruction on mitigation. Yes, this one is labeled capital murder bifurcated penalty trial mitigation. That's the one I just read to you. Then there's the other change. Uh, in the capital murder, one aggravator instruction. So there were two changes that were made. Well, the model, I have what uh, I understand to be the current model jury instruction in Virginia on mitigation, which simply says, if you find that the Commonwealth has proved beyond a reasonable doubt the existence of an aggravating circumstance in determining the appropriate punishment, you should consider any evidence presented of circumstances which do not justify or excuse the offense, but which in fairness or mercy may extenuate or reduce the degree of moral culpability and punishment. That's the one I'm alluding to, and the instruction here which in the second paragraph detailed a number of examples of mitigation. It didn't say anything about if you find one aggravator nonetheless. That's what was missing from the old instruction, and is it present in the new one? Well, of course, the, the old instruction, six members of the court, and we, as Weeks has repeatedly conceded, the old instruction uh, — Six members of the court thought that what happened in this case wouldn't happen under this instruction, and they were wrong. Well, I've it did happen in this case. What, they, what was predicted in the dissent happened in this very case. 
Well, but the the point is, Your Honor, and it seems to me the underlying premise in in many respects of this appeal is that the asking of the question was some sort of extraordinary development that that basically rendered both before and after uh, everything in this case essentially meaningless, and it it changed the case for good. But we've cited many cases. Every instruction that a jury asks a question about has to be a flawed instruction? Uh, No. No, no, sir. But do you concede that, back away from this case, not this case, is it possible that a perfectly valid instruction could be given in a criminal case and a jury could inquire of a judge and indicate such confusion that some clarification might be required? Uh, uh, Yes, Justice O'Connor. So suppose, for example, the jury, either in an initial question or, say, a follow-up question, of course, it's highly revealing that there was no follow-up question here. But suppose the jury had not merely asked the question in general terms, and by the way, the question didn't say, we've reviewed instruction number two repeatedly, and we now ask the following question. It did not advert to the instructions at all. It simply asked in general terms, if we find an aggravating factor, basically where does that leave us? Do we go ahead and automatically impose a death penalty, or do we, on the other hand, consider all the evidence and, and decide the punishment. But if the jury had said, in, in complete contrast to what, in fact, happened here, something to the effect of, we've looked at instruction number two repeatedly, and we think we understand it, and as, as, we, as we do, our understanding is that uh, if we find one of the aggravating factors, uh, that's it, that's the end of our inquiry, and we just basically want to make sure that's right. I think clearly the judge would, would be required to knock that down and say, no, that's not right. Um, and then as part of, of doing that, he'd have every right to say something along the lines of, go back to instruction number two, beginning with the paragraph X. And that, in fact, uh, properly explains and sets forth the sentencing scheme. But, I mean, if, if there was some pretty uh, conspicuous uh, or egregious uh, misconception expressed in the jury's question, then that would be something a judge suppose, would have to so why, Suppose it isn't that. Suppose, for example, a totally different case. Uh, there's a state law problem. You have a terrifically adequate, perfect, wonderful obstru- uh, instruction, and it happens to use the word abscond. And the jury comes in and says, uh, Judge, uh, we know that uh, most people would know what this means, and unfortunately our English teacher in high school, four of us, had a terrible teacher, and and we just haven't a clue what that means. Just please tell us what it means. The word is abscond, Your Honor. And the judge says, I'll tell you what you do. Go read the instruction. Now, would that be reversible error in a Virginia court? If if it happens to be that abscond is the whole key to the case, would it happen to be reversible error? It would be a closer question. All right. They might reverse that. Fine. Uh, if that — if, in fact, there's a judgment of the Constitution of the United States requires that the jury have a meaning of what abscond is, nah. would you say maybe there was a constitutional issue? In that case, nothing wrong with the instruction in general. Just in this case, because the jury has made it totally clear they haven't a clue what the key word means. But I, I disagree with the premise, Your Honor, that the — Well, I'm making it as a hypothetical. So I haven't talked about this case yet, so don't disagree with the premise. In my case with abscond, would you say that uh, it was reversible? It's, it's very hard to answer that in any kind of meaningful way without knowing the, the full context. Well, I'll give you as much case. context as you'd like. The con- I make it up as I go along. <laughs> so, so, so you imagine the context. Happens the word is absolutely key to the case. There are you, uh, courts and cases under the Constitution, one called pocket, I think, not locket, which happens to say that uh, uh, the word abscond is 100 percent must be clear in the ju- jury's mind. The, the instruction's perfect. The jury just happens to say, because of our English teacher, we haven't a clue what this word means. Now, you have to say something? Well, surely one of the members of the jury would have had an English teacher that would have... Uh, I mean, does the judge have more of an obligation to explain it than another juror? I, I think that the short answer is I don't, if, if the instruction has been upheld as adequate, I think the, the, the judge, as a matter of constitutional law, would be perfectly within his rights to refer the jury back to the instruction, and the, and the answer, the, the judge could, could reasonably conclude that if the jury, and you have 12, 
members in there, perhaps you have two alternates as well, that before they return the verdict, that they will come to some acceptable understanding of the word abscond. But maybe, maybe an instruction would be invalid if it used a term so technical that there was a possibility that nobody on the jury would know what it meant. Well, that would that, — that's an interesting — Maybe that's why you have 12 jurors, so that even if, if some have had bad English teachers, the rest would be able to help them out as to what fairly standard words mean. They'll fell on the breach, Justice Scalia. And if you use a word so hyper-technical, hyper maybe the instruction would be bad, if, if indeed it's likely nobody on the jury would know what it meant. And, and the comfort we can take from this case is that we know from Buchanan that that's not the situation we have here. No, but you basically, if I understand your answer to Justice Breyer's question, you basically reject the proposition that it's the obligation of the judge to explain the law to the jury in a way that the jury can understand. You, you reject that proposition because you say even if it affirmatively appears that the judge has not done that, uh, we'll leave it to the other jurors to, to uh, help their, their lagging friends to figure out what it means. So you basically reject the, the proposition that the judge has the obligation. No, Justice Souter, I, I think we have it's obviously a continuum of questions and, and concerns they raise. Well, what I'm I the let's just go back to Justice Breyer's hypothetical. You, you say, as I understand it, that when the jury makes it clear beyond peradventure that some of its members do not understand a word which is crucial to the instruction, it does not necessarily follow that the judge has got to explain that uh, to, the, to the jurors who are having the difficulty. I don't think that uh, it invariably would require under, under any and all circumstances. Well, how, what are the circumstances in which we decide we'll play roulette uh, and, and, and take a chance that a juror will return a verdict using a term that the juror does not understand? I, I think we have to — I've given an example where the jury in this setting says something that flatly evinces its misunderstanding of its obligation to consider the mitigating evidence. I would agree. Well, I thought the test we had articulated was whether there is a reasonable likelihood that the jury misunderstood its ability to consider the mitigating evidence. Yes, Justice O'Connor, that's clearly — Do you agree with that as the test? That's — in this case, clearly that is the test, and I think Weeks fails miserably. Mr. Olive, I, I don't know why you're not willing to grasp the bull by the horns and say that there is no once uh, 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 once an instruction has been found clear, there is no obligation to clarify it any further. Indeed, I would think that the term that a jury most often doesn't understand is beyond a reasonable doubt, and I bet they come in with questions about that all the time. And as you know, that is a minefield, and any judge would be out of his mind if he did anything except read back the state formulary instruction as to what beyond a reasonable doubt means, rather than ad lib uh, uh, a response to that difficult question. Well, and, and, and in fact, Justice Scalia, I'd, I'd hope to be able to get to that at some point today. It seems to me by the logic of Weeks' argument, and there can't be anything more fundamental in the criminal law than the concept of uh, reasonable doubt and proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it seems to me, well, by there's a, there's a vast difference between a general misunderstanding of a term like that and a question that was asked in this case. If we believe that Lonnie Weeks, Jr. is guilty of at least one of the alternatives, then is it our duty to, as a jury to issue the death penalty? And I'm saying, Justice That's Stevens — That's a yes or no question that doesn't acquire any ad-libbing. Well — but where the fact that conceitedly the judge could have answered it yes or no, but that is not the, the controlling question here. The question could he in, is, in, in, is there any possible answer that would have been clearer than either a yes or a no? I don't know if there's one any clearer, but the, the question here is whether or not the trial judge, this is after all a federal habeas case where we're uh, considering in this collateral setting uh, subject, among other things, to the Teague New Rule Doctrine in 2254D, whether or not the judge was constitutionally required to give that answer or whether or not he was constitutionally, constitutionally required to ad lib either yes or no. I don't think he was — well, if, if you want to refer to, to the term ad lib, I do not think he was constitutionally required by a long shot 
to uh, ad lib and give that answer, or, and he was just as importantly, he was not constitutionally obligated. And it's perfectly or, satisfactory or to refer the jury back to the very question and the very sentence in the instructions that gave rise to the question. That's a that's an adequate answer in your judgment. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You, may, may I go back to your answer to Justice O'Connor's question in which you indicated the, that, the, that your answer might be different, the result might be different, if the jurors had come back uh, and, and had, to a degree not present here, made it affirmatively clear that they just were not able to follow the, the, the instruction uh, if they had said, look, we, we, we just don't understand what you're trying to get at by this instruction. Uh, that there the judge might have had a further obligation. Uh, no, I, uh, Justice Souter, if the example I gave is where the jury flatly manifests some affirmative misunderstanding of the law rather than simply we're having a hard time. Yeah, let's say the jury comes it. back and say, we, we understand that once we find an aggravating circumstance, we've got to impose the death penalty, period. Right? Have we got it right? In that circumstance, I think that was your hypo before or something like that. Something that in that circumstance, you would say, well, yep, the judge has got to explain that. Well, he, he certainly, at a bare minimum, constitutionally would have to say, no, that is not right. You need — I want to refer you back to instruction number two, beginning with the second paragraph. That will explain — that will tell you, in fact, how the sentencing process works in Virginia. What you just said is incorrect. If he said something along those lines, I think that's perfectly fine well, constitutionally. What is the difference in principle between a jury coming back and indicating precisely uh, uh, the, the erroneous conclusion they're drawing from the instruction on the one hand, and a juror coming back uh, saying, in effect, we don't know what to infer from the instruction. We don't know whether the answer to our question is yes or whether the answer to our question is no. Why should there be a distinction in principle between those two situations? Because I, I would say that there, it, it, we're looking at what the judge did, and among other things, we're having to determine whether or not it's even a constitutional matter to begin with. And, and by the way... No, but stick to my question for a minute. Why should there be a distinction in principle between the jurors who manifest and, and affirmatively manifest an erroneous reading of the instruction and the situation in which the jurors clearly manifest that they don't understand the instruction. Because I, I think it goes to just how much realistically there is a danger that the jury will, in fact, misapply the uh, instruction. And I might point out that You're that saying in the first place the, the odds are up at about 99 percent that they're going to misapply it. And in the second case, we don't have a clue what they're going to do. We can't tell you what the odds are. No, I, I, that, that is... Well, maybe as to isn't, the, isn't that the difference between the two situations? If the jurors say, we don't know what the thing means, you know, they might jump this way, they might jump that way. We don't know. So, so we can't give you any odds in the second situation. In the first situation, we know darn well what they're going to do if the judge doesn't head them off. Well, that, two, that's the difference, isn't it? Two, two things, Justice Souter. First on the... Well, but just yes or no, isn't that the difference between no. the two situations? All right, what is the difference? The difference is, in terms of applying the Boyd test, we cannot just freeze in time the question and answer, which is what Weeks wishes to do in this case. Everything. Well, you're you're you're, give, you're not answering my hypo. No, but I, I I think he should answer my hypo. I think that there is a fundamental difference, as the Ninth Circuit recognized in a later case, Berrigan Davis, that that uh, limited. The McDowell case that counsel cited today, there is a fundamental difference in terms of what the, the judge's duty and obligation in responding to the jury's question between a jury, a question that simply says, how does it, how does it work, versus we think we know how it works, and then they say something that is wrong. But under Boyd, why should that be so? Well, I, I, under Boyd, the test is whether or not the jury has applied, that is the phrase, whether the jury, a, excuse me, whether a reasonable likelihood exists that the jury has applied the allegedly ambiguous instruction in a constitutionally impermissible fashion. And Boyd also talked in terms of, uh, of the common sense proposition about everything that has taken place in the trial. It seems to me you cannot just fix on the question and answer and say that that is controlling above everything else, both before and after. 
One of the ironies of this case is that but for the question that was asked, and that is the linchpin of this appeal in the first place, but for that we would not know certain things that are highly probative under the Boyd reasonable probability test. We know, for example, because the question was asked that there were no follow-up questions, even though the jury in voir dire had basically said, if we do not fully understand an instruction, we promise to seek any necessary clarification. So for two and a half, they have no follow-up questions. We also know that the jury deliberated for uh, almost two and a half additional hours. It seems to me by the logic of Weeks' argument uh, that the deliberations should essentially have come to a screeching halt, that the jury, once it heard this answer, they come back, much like in Ballenbach, five or ten minutes later and say, Your Honor, we're back. We sentence him to death. Uh, if you'll just tell us where we can pick up our things and we'll go home. Nothing remotely happened like that. And it seems to me the very fact may, — may I, may I ask um, a question in, just on the background facts of this case? At 196 of the Joint Appendix, Volume 2, you give us two of the verdict forms that I assume were submitted to the jury. Uh, the one at the top of 196 uh, indicates that there would be a death penalty because the jury unanimously found that uh, there would be future dangerousness. And the second one has future dangerousness and violence. Yes, sir. Was, was there a third one for just violence? Yes, and, uh, y- yes, Justice Kennedy, if you look at page... Uh, 228 of the appendix. That is the one, and I think this is hugely significant. That is, in fact, the verdict form that the jury found. There were five verdict forms in this case. And the verdict form seems to me to, to make it crystal clear that the jury considered and gave effect to the mitigating evidence because uh, the, I was, uh, the, the, I'm sorry. It, it seemed to me that it's uh, one way to read what the jury said is, is in effect, this. Judge, if we have found that this was a vile crime and we are have voted to, to what they call issue the death penalty in their term, to issue the death penalty on that, do we have to go on and talk about future dangerousness? It seems to me that's a, a plausible way to, to read their, their, their concern. And, and the answer, it seems to me, doesn't make much difference if, 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 they, if they agreed on the death penalty. But the, 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 the problem with that is that the question on its Face did not it did not advert to either aggravating factor it, it, to to construe or equate the jury's question. Well, well I, I thought the question was 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 a little bit uh, uh, confusing, and I thought that that was at least one interpretation of the question. I, I don't think that necessarily mm-hmm. hurts your case. But. Well, it, it seems to me, Justice Kennedy, that it would be just rank speculation or conjecture to say that at the time the jury asked the question that the jury had in its mind, well, we're inclined to find vileness here, and if we find vileness, uh, well, let's find out from the judge whether that's the end of the inquiry. But, but it was page 228 that was the form that was submitted, I take it. Right. Uh, and, the, the, and that was returned by the — May I ask yes, one last one question before your light goes out? Would you agree that if the judge had responded, instead of saying, see second paragraph instruction two, which begins, if you find, if instead he had responded <laughs> with the reference to the second clause, if you believe from all the evidence, that the answer would have been clearer? I'm sorry, uh, Justice Stephen, could you repeat See, the question? When, he re- when the judge responded to the question, he referred the jury to the entire paragraph, beginning, if you find from the evidence. And I'm suggesting that the response would have been clearer if he had said, referred them to the second clause in the paragraph, or if you believe from all the evidence, that that would have been more directly responsive to the juror's question. Do you think that's correct? It, it, it might have been it, it might have. marginally clear, but I think the Constitution... But that is, the, it is the second half on which you rely as the clarity of the answer, isn't it? Well, the, the second half in particular, but you take the paragraph as you find it, as this Court did in but Buchanan. But the first part of the paragraph is not responsive to the question, and the second half is. Well, the Court dealt with the overall instruction and said the paragraph itself created a simple decisional tree, which again, in the cert petition, weeks affirmatively track that language, and which you didn't have to if, if he said the second clause, I'm not sure that the, the, the uh, 
If he used the Perhaps same words. Perhaps a fictional high school teacher taught them what a clause is either. I'm not, I'm not he sure. Wouldn't refer to <laughs> I'm not sure I would have been. Uh, I, I would have been. Leaving the teacher out of it, if you, if you referred just to that one sentence, then it's rather hard to see the decisional tree. See? It was necessary to do the clarification, yeah. because a key part of that decisional tree comes in the, in, the cl- in the later sentence to which he did not refer. Am I right about that? Are, we, are you referring, Your Honor, to the if you, I don't want to go on at length. I'm looking in the blue brief, and it looks as if to me on page 14 there are two separate paragraphs. Forget it. Forget it. That's it. Oh. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. The case is submitted. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll hear our argument next.